So one of the, my wife has been gone all week. The first three days, she and my son were on a retreat with um, his school. And so I was a bachelor, and that was pretty challenging, being a bachelor. But then they got back on Wednesday evening, and she left Thursday morning to go to Washington, D.C. for business. And then, in the last three days, I have been a single parent, and that has been much worse. Um, I, I'm too embarrassed to send, to let you know about the texts that I sent her. Um, but one of the real blessings of, of this experience is that Coleman, uh, I have gotten to pick up Coleman from school the, the last two days. And so, uh, he gave me permission, by the way, I'm not like scarring him. But, um, He'll tell me everything that happens at school because he still has energy at like 3.45. And that's, I realized, that's how Ospa gets all her intel. And why, you know, he doesn't talk to me at all. Um, you know, it's, it's not who it is. It's late at night, so that made me feel a lot better about myself. But um, one of the things we talked about is that at his middle school, there's not enough room for everyone to play. Uh, there, there's, there's like a little tiny field for soccer, there's a small court for basketball, um, and really that, that's about it. And so, you know, you've got like 20 people trying to play basketball when it should be 10, and you've got, you know, just hordes of people playing soccer, not even being able to move. And so there are a group of kids that started to sit under a tree because they had to go outside um, during recess, but... Charleston is so miserably hot that they would sit under a tree. And so after a couple of weeks of sitting under the tree, they started to think of themselves as like a group. And they were like, yeah, you know, we sort of belong. We're like the under the tree group. And so then they, they started, you know, thinking up all these ideas and, and things about themselves. And, and they were having a really great time. And Coleman was, was loving it. And, he was, but, and this week he was like, Daddy, it went really bad. I said, what happened? And he said, well... The more that we talked about it, the more people had ideas, and the more people that had ideas, the more they disagreed. And like one guy wanted to be president, and the other guy wanted to be the president, and they were arguing why each one should be the president of our club. And I was like, the Under the Tree Club? And he was like, yeah. And I, and I thought, oh my gosh, I have my illustration for my sermon. Um, the self-destructing club under the tree. The problem that we're looking at in this passage and the, why uh, the narrator of 2 Samuel um, is, is sharing this part of the story of David is that there are many competing visions and talents and egos and convictions that really make it difficult for any church, or in this case, Israel, to sustain any unified growth. And so... Um, one of the themes of First and Second Samuel is the justification of David's kingship in Israel. Unlike nearly every other ancient history that focuses, you know, on only on like the greatness of a leader, um, the Bible is very clear in pointing out the weaknesses and sin of David. You know, as we saw a couple weeks ago, Jonathan, when Jonathan preached, um, David was only spared the guilt of you know unjustifiably killing Nabal because Abigail wisely talked him out of it. And the passage that uh, should have ended happily with David and Abigail walking hand in hand into the sunset, as we saw, instead it finished with an addendum of David foolishly taking a second wife. And the reader just wants to say, what an idiot. 
But the narrator makes sure that we know that David is not an idealized character, but he is still the right man to be Israel's king. In David's slow ascent to the throne, we see several essential priorities about living in the kingdom of God that David himself lived out, showing him to truly be a man after God's own heart. And these priorities are really, they're also essential for us as a church with warts and imperfections like David to be a church that's truly after God's own heart. And so the main idea that I want to get across today is that the church and Big C Church, the universal church, but also us as a church individually here is most glorious when we trust the goodness of God's will. And that seems very vague, and, but it'll make sense in a little bit. So, and when we look at verses 1 through 16, we see a, a young man who was the son of an Amalekite sojourner living in Israel, escapes from Saul's camp and shows up in David's camp with torn clothes and dirt on his face, you know, which, which are signs of mourning. And David naturally wants to know how the battle went, and the man tells him, that they had to retreat and that Saul and his son, Jonathan, were killed. And David questions the man how he knows this. And the man inserts himself into Saul's death, thinking to gain some upper hand. You know, like, hey, maybe I can get in good with David, right? And that's why he's traveled so far. Um, and, and he's, you know, he says... You know, suggesting that he just happened to be on Mount Gilboa and saw Saul injured, and Saul called him over and asked him to put him out of his misery. And being sure that Saul couldn't survive, he served the king in such an honorable way. And so afterward, he removed Saul's crown and armband. Those, you know, the armband with the, it was one of those rings that you know tough guys try to have on there. I, I don't know. In the Middle East, they still have them sometimes. Anyway, um, if you watch like movies from back in that time. Anyway, all right, so, um, and, and he delivered them all the way to David many, many miles away. And this guy was showing really great diplomatic sense, uh, obviously hoping that David would see how honorable he was and look on him highly and maybe rewarding his loyalty with some of, you know, with some, say, position or, or something along those lines now that David had a clear path to the throne now that Saul was gone. For just about any wannabe king, this young man's tactics would have been foolproof. But the problem was that David's priorities weren't those of a normal king. Rather than rejoicing that what he had been promised by Samuel was finally coming through, that he was going to be king, David wept. Verse 11, he tore his clothes and he wept in mourning and, and his men followed suit and they fasted even, you know, until evening over Saul and Jonathan. And at that point, David had been given time to think and collect his thoughts. And so he asks the young man, how is it that you weren't afraid to kill the Lord's anointed? And the young man was <laughs> executed after that. David's greatest priority wasn't his own success. but it was honoring God's plan and God's chosen king. He had been willing to spend his days in the land of the Philistines for an indefinite period rather than simply put to death the psychotic tyrant who was trying to kill him. 
because the Lord, the Lord, had previously anointed Saul's king. He was not about to usurp God's authority and say, look, I can do better than Saul. Let's get around this roadblock and get this country back on track. Let's make America great again. I mean, no, no. Um, he trusted God's will and God's timing for God's nation and people. The young man lost his life for taking credit for a crime he never actually committed. David was an uncommon king, and the young man in his deceit couldn't have imagined David's posture toward God and his people was not centered on aspirations of his own personal success, but instead on loyalty and service to God. Well, so how does the posture of a long-ago king relate to us? Well, uh, one of the things that I have noticed about myself um, and have to repent of regularly, um, but I also see in, in many of the young people um, that live in Charleston is that um, we look for success in ministry. Young people are often impatient for change. Um, for instance, I, I had a friend tell me about a church plant that he visited of about 30 people, mostly 20 to 28 year olds, and they were determined, this was their tagline, we're going to change this city because nobody else is doing it right. Now, I, I love the passion, but unfortunately the motivations underneath such aspirations are really, they're full of ego. Based on pride, wanting to be tied to something successful, which does not promote trusting God's will and being faithful when changing your city may prove harder than first dream. So, the other thing that comes to mind about success is, you know, um, if I'm not in charge or feeling empowered or being made to feel special by those that I'm serving, we often have a tendency to say, I'm out of here. I, I, don't, I don't notice this much in Two Rivers at all, really, thankfully. But we as sinful human beings have a tendency to make everything about ourselves, even our ministry. It's painful to lead a small group and have one person show up. It's frustrating to plan things that and never be thanked or no, or you know or shown any notice. It's irritating when some ministry is struggling and you know how you could do something much better if they just let you. And David knew that he would be a better king than Saul, but he wasn't about to usurp Saul's power or try to badmouth him to everyone because trusted the goodness of God's will. And it was beautiful. And it was glorious. Because if he had just tried to usurp Saul's power and kill Saul, he would have divided the nation. So, oftentimes, you know, what we need to see in, you know, making uh, God's will the, the priority in our aspirations it's not just sort of success in ministry, but maybe, maybe you don't struggle with aspirations in ministry, not because you're godly, but simply because uh, your great loyalty lies in your career or your family aspirations. Um, I have friends named Andy and Brenda um, that whose kids are about 30, 
Um, it's hard to tell what age they are. I'll say mid-60s. Um, and Andy has been a computer guy for the last 30 years, and Brenda has been a manager of a group of doctors. And they've done fine. They've done well. Um, they do their, their jobs very well, but their identity was always centered in Christ and his church. And they've spent their lives serving in a ton of different capacities at various times. And the church, as I've gotten to see over the last 15 years of knowing them, the church has been eternally impacted. Not just the local church, but the lives of many people who were mentored and cared for by then, and then have moved to other places in the country and are serving the Lord there. They worked with adults, they worked with college students, they worked with newly married, they, they worked with children, they served on the session, uh, and like they even counseled the pastor in a number of situations. And but one thing that stuck out is when they were working with college students, at one point they realized they weren't the best suited teachers for college students. That the college students had somewhat of a different language than they did um, as postmodernism sort of uh, took shape. And so, rather than, like, trying harder or being mad at college students, uh, they found various knowledgeable people to come in and speak on selected topics and focused on hospitality and relationships. And they were just open to doing whatever God wanted. And like David, their priority wasn't success, either in the world of ministry or in the world at large but to serve the Lord, and it was far more glorious. So wouldn't it be easier for us if, like David's men, we had a king who would mentor and teach us how to make God's will a priority in our aspirations? In John 4, when the disciples were worried about Jesus and tried to make him eat, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. His aspirations weren't to have a great ministry of success, but to serve the Father doing his will, which meant dying, which is the furthest thing from success, for our sin. So thank God, as we say, for great David's greater son. Now in verses 17 through 28, the narrator inserts a poem of lament that David wrote in response to this news that was read to his men and, and placed in the book of Cheshar, which is really a sort of national book of poetry. And in verse 20, David commands people not to let uh, the people of Gath or Ascalon, which are two Philistine cities, to know about Saul's death because it meant the defeat of God's people. David's priority here was God's reputation. In verse 21, David curses Mount Gilboa, the place of Saul's death, rather than rejoicing him. In verses 22 and 23, David highlights the bravery and victories of Saul and Jonathan and Bacchus. So he's acknowledging that good came out of Saul. If you've been with us the last however many weeks, and you were David, how could you possibly see good come out of Saul? And in verse 23, he specifically highlights 
that Saul and Jonathan were undivided in both life and death. But didn't Saul at one one point try to kill Jonathan? And didn't Jonathan save David from Saul? How were they not divided, as as it says there? Well, although they obviously didn't agree on things, they both fought for the good of Israel, God's people, and went into battle together for the Lord. And David sees that as something worthy of note. And in verse 24, you know, David commands the daughters of Israel to weep over their uh, Saul and, and Jonathan's deaths, knowing that a ton of good came from Saul's kingship. And so when I get to that verse, I'm asking, how do you see and then publicly acknowledge and even memorialize the work of a psychopath that tried to kill you? When we're mad at our wives or our husbands or parents or ex-boyfriends or ex-girlfriends, it's really hard to see the good they bring to us. But what if, out of jealousy, they tried to murder us? And they destroyed our lives. Could you see fit to honor them? How does David do it? David's priority was God's glory through God's people. He didn't consider himself to be the center of the world. And so even though evil was done to David, he couldn't discount the good that came about for God's people through Saul's reign, even if it was warped and selfish. David trusted the goodness of God's will in making Saul king. What we see here is in prioritizing, you know, giving God priority over our emotions. We see the glory of forgiveness is so much greater than resentment. We're guaranteed to experience injury and offense if we're involved in any church long enough. Um, I'm the son of a church organist, just so you know. And uh, we were at five different churches in my childhood. Then I was a youth minister for five years. And so I can tell you that I have seen tons of injured and angry people over the years. And here's the pattern. Injury leads to distancing oneself, which then leads to bitterness and less involvement and avoidance, which leads to further discontent and suspicion and gossip, which eventually leads to division or just simply leaving church. I am a person who tends to make decisions based on their emotions. And emotions aren't evil. Like, we know that David was certainly an emotional person as well. But as we see throughout the Psalms, he filtered his emotions, dealt with his emotions through God's will. He understood that God was good. He understood the priority of united Israel. He understood the anointing of Saul as God's king. And so he dealt with his emotions based on those truths. The definition of forgiveness is is like whatever is the cost of the injury that's happened to you, you being willing to take that on yourself. 
and not make someone pay back. We forgive because God has forgiven us. But also, because we know that God has a bigger plan than our hurt. And that he'll work through. That's how David makes a memorial like this. You know, our, our church has a contingency of people who have been wounded other places. And that's probably the case uh, for any church these days. You know, and I, but I, I think that we need to speak truth to one another. Like Nathan will, in a couple chapters coming forward, famously, like Nathan will with David. Not being silenced in her. To forgive rather than secretly build up resent. We need to work through these offenses in our emotions. Uh, there's two men uh, that I have known for a long time. Uh, John Hildreth, who I didn't know would be here today. Um, I've known him for nine years and Barry Brinson for eight years. And I've watched them time and time again. Work through offenses, hurt, and forgive. I've seen them overlook personal offenses because they knew God's forgiveness and the importance of unity in the church. And it's a way of being a light to the world. I've watched them seek to submit their emotions to the will of God, and it's been, for me, glorious. And I think that it's the most overlooked attribute of leadership, is the ability to forgive. If only we had a king like David, who could trust God's will enough to publicly forgive for the sake of unity. Oh, we do, King Jesus. And it's why we sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Die thee for me who caused his pain, for me whom him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? It's our offenses he's overlooked, our offenses whose cost he accepted. And that is the king that we live under. There's a little addendum at the end of this passage. In verses 25 through 28, David finishes with a special public ode to Jonathan. He called him his brother, expressing how extraordinary Jonathan's friendship had been to him. You know, and, and you think, why such a tribute? Their friendship was extraordinary because it was based on both of them making God's will their priority. We've seen David refuse to try to usurp Saul's throne because he was God's anointed. And Jonathan likewise surrendered his worldly rights to be Saul's heir, knowing that David was God's anointed. And he did everything he could to make sure David could live long enough to become that king. This bond led them to risk their lives for one another. From what we see here, and making the, you know, God's will the priority in our relationships, and our friendships, we see that the glory of a bond between two people over God's will is far greater than the bond that we have over our mutual benefiting relationship. 
typical friendships look for comfort. We look for people who are in the same walk of life. I remember when Coleman was, you know, eight months and looking for another dad who knew just how I felt on the playground with the kid who couldn't climb up the steps yet and couldn't really go anywhere but just ate bark and looked like a frog. And I wanted a friend so badly there. You know, that, that's what we, we look to common interests. We look to parenting styles. We look to cultural practices. We look to education. We look to which TV shows we like watching. But David and Jonathan, Jonathan being Prince and David being the youngest shepherd kid in the family, what did they have in common? They bonded over God's will. Do you initiate spiritual conversations? Are you willing to be vulnerable? In John 15, 13 through 15, Jesus says, Greater love is no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I've made known to you. There is friends, not as servants, because he shared with them God's will. And he's our friend as well. So all human friendship must be subordinate to the love of that friend who laid down his life for us and who was faithful when all others deserve us. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would enable us to be unified. That we, as your household, might be a light to the world. We might be your presence on earth. That it might be glorious. as we trust the goodness of your will. To make it the priority of our aspirations, priority of our emotions, priority in our friendships. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.